This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reform Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reform views based on the Word of God and the Reform Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. We read God's Word this morning as we find it in Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Our scripture reading this morning is verses 1 through 14 of Galatians chapter 5. Hear the word of God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. You did run well. Who did hinder you that he should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We read that far in God's holy and inspired word. We turn now to the back of the Psalter where we find the Heidelberg Catechism based upon the Scriptures, some of which we have read this morning. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us or instructs us on the truth of our righteousness before God or our justification by faith alone in Christ alone. In Lord's Day 23, we saw the positive instruction, and this morning we consider Lord's Day 24, where we find the Catechism defending that truth, the same truth of justification by faith in Christ alone. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? 
because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law. And also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means. For it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the book of Galatians that we read from this morning shows us the zeal of Paul and of the Holy Spirit which inspired Paul the zeal for the gospel of Jesus Christ, particularly the heart of the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Zeal is a jealous love. A jealous love for God, a jealous love for Christ and His gospel, a jealous love for the church that this gospel comes to for their comfort. Paul, in his zeal, a jealous love for the gospel, brings this sharp book of the Bible to the church of his day and to the church today. The book of Galatians is similar to the book of Romans in that both have as their main theme this gospel of justification by faith alone. If you read Romans and you read Galatians, you find similarities Romans, however, is a more positive explanation of that gospel, and Galatians is a more negative in that it defends that gospel with fighting words or polemics against errors and false teachers which would dare attack this precious gospel. Paul saw the need for such a letter. He saw a need for such a letter because there were false teachers in his day called Judaizers. These Judaizers were Jews that had infiltrated the church. And these teachers were very deceptive. They would use similar terms. Similar terms that went along with the gospel of grace. They would talk about how salvation was all of grace. They would speak of how we are righteous because of Jesus alone. And they would also speak of how we receive that righteousness by faith. But they would include in that gospel of justification by faith that you must also obey. And that ambiguity was their way to teach that you must obey in order to be assured of righteousness before God. Listen carefully, beloved. The teaching, the false teaching of the Judaizers was not only to attack the basis of our righteousness before God, 
because of Jesus alone, but was also to attack the means or the instrument for receiving that knowledge or that assurance of our righteous standing before God. The Gospel says faith alone. And the Judaizers taught faith and something else. Some obedience for the reception of that righteousness in our souls. In his zeal for the Gospel, Paul makes sharp statements against these false teachers who preach a different Gospel. In Galatians 1 verse 8, we find this, though we, Paul says, though we and the other apostles or even an angel from heaven preach any other Gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Galatians 5, where we read, we find some cutting words. He warns in verse 4, those who believe the false gospel of the Judaizers, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Literally, you are cut off from Christ. Whosoever of you are justified by the law you are fallen from grace. That does not mean, of course, that Paul was teaching or denying the preservation of the saints. He's a champion of the preservation of the saints. But he is saying that someone whose confession now changes so that he confesses to believe something different from the Gospel. While at one time with his confession he seemed to be joined to Christ, he is not. He is cut off. Later on in verse 10, he expresses a confidence in many Galatians who are indeed true believers. So he's there to comfort many of the Galatians too, who in time would reject the Judaizer doctrine, false gospel, tooth and nail, but he expresses a great ire against the false teachers themselves. Verse 12, the second part of it. I would, you can put an explanation point, exclamation point at the end of that phrase, I would, they were even cut off which trouble you. And that literally is not merely cut off from the church and excommunicated, but literally it is castrated. And that's not a random expression meant to get attention. But it's, rela it's related to the Judaizer teaching. The main good work that the Judaizer wanted to include as a good work with faith through which one would receive the righteousness of Christ was the good work of circumcision which required cutting and Paul now lashes out with zeal against those who required cutting that work for justification before God. And he says, I would that they go and cut themselves if they are so interested in that work of cutting. That's not very nice. 
In our tolerant culture, that's not very nice in our ears. But it is the inspired Word of God. And the purpose, the purpose that God has His Word here in such sharpness is not for us to take it and, 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 and attack anyone and everyone that we disagree with using this sharp word. But the purpose is for us to realize the seriousness of corrupting in any way this heart of the Gospel. In true love for the Gospel, for the righteousness of Christ, and for the church that receives comfort through this, Paul writes with this sharpness. And it goes along with Lord's Day 24. Lord's Day 23, remember I said, is the positive explanation of how we are righteous before God because of Jesus Christ alone and how we receive that declaration of righteousness by faith alone. We considered that positively a couple of weeks ago already. Lord's Day 24 now is like Galatians in that it faces the errors which attack this precious gospel and defends it with fighting words. Consider with me this truth under the theme righteous without works. You hear the negative. First, the truth defended. And then, those who are offended answer. The truth defended and then the offended answer. The Catechism asks the question which is asked by the enemies of the Gospel. Why cannot our good works be the whole or at least a part of our righteousness before God. That is the first and the main challenge against the gospel of righteousness by Christ alone, or in Christ alone, received through faith. Why not? Why not, first of all, look at the word whole. Why not let man, why not let me, Instead of Christ, be righteous before God. Why not let my good works, of course, of course, that the Spirit works in me, why not let all the works that the Spirit works in me be for my righteous standing before God? That's the first part of that question. Or at least, why not a part of it? Why not let it be this, this way? That yes, we'll, we'll, we'll keep Christ's righteousness as mine, but include along with Christ's righteousness just a little bit, just maybe one of my spirit-wrought good works. And let that be for my righteous standing before God. Why not? And you can hear, you should be hearing already in your head, the thunderbolts of Paul's words in Galatians. Anathema! Accursed! That's another gospel. Let him who teaches such be castrated. Let those who believe that be cut off. But now we have to understand why it cannot be 
Not only the ire of God against such a false gospel, but you need to understand understand why it cannot be. The Catechism presents us with a two-step argument. First part of the argument is familiar, and it has to do with God's identity. This is why our works, even our spirit-wrought good works, cannot be the whole or even a little part of our righteous standing before God. Number one, because of the identity of God the judge, He is perfectly righteous. The Catechism explains, because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal, that means, children, the judgment seat of God, must be absolutely perfect and in all all respects conformable to the divine law. For God to declare you righteous, He says, I must have perfect works. Not just one perfect work, but I must have, from the moment of your conception, and to the end of your life, the entire span of your life full of only good works. And not just outward good works, but it has to be with your entire heart, mind, soul, and strength. With perfect love. That's the law. That's the law we read this morning. If you come before God's judgment seat and there is a single work, even a single thought that is contrary to God's law, then this would be His declaration regarding you. Galatians 3. Verse 10, just a couple of chapters back, the second part of Galatians 3.10, Cursed is everyone, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. And so I ask you an application of this first part of the argument against including works as a whole or part for your righteous standing before God. Do you dare to bring, do you dare to bring one of your works before God's judgment seat today or or at the end of your life on judgment day? Do you dare to bring one of your works and say, "On, on this basis, along with Christ, along this basis, On this basis, judge me as righteous. That should send a shiver down your spine. And make you desperately cry. No! No! Don't even look at my works. None of them, Lord. But then I would be cursed. Only Christ's finished work. But maybe some are still thinking, how about Christ's righteousness and one of my works? Why not? My best good work. Let it be a small contribution to my righteous standing before God. And that brings us to the second argument of the catechism that goes along with the first. The catechism says God requires perfect, absolutely perfect works 
but also our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Take the best prayer, the most sincere prayer that you have made, the most heartfelt, the most humble, even the one in which you have confessed all your sins with true sorrow, you thank God for all the blessings of salvation, express utter reliance upon Him, take one of those prayers and add that to the righteousness of Christ so that He might or God might declare you righteous and worthy of eternal life. You would be condemned. Why, the Catechism explains. Because even that best prayer is defiled. Look at that word. It is, it, it's dirtied with sin. Your sinful nature taints your best works. Take the best sermon of the best preacher. Take the martyrdom of a man confessing the truth. Take the diligence of the most godly office bearer and include that as part of your righteous standing before God and you are condemned. You know what the Bible says about those best works, correct? Right? If, if they're added to the righteousness of Christ for your standing before God. Filthy rags, Isaiah 64, verse, verse 6. Menstrual cloths. And Paul says in Philippians 3.8, Dung. Dung. Gross-smelling, decomposing garbage or feces. And that is not, beloved, I qualify very briefly, that is not to say that we despise good works of thanks or that we should not do those good works and seek to do our best works and thanks to God. But it is this, that when we do, we try to use them for our covering before the righteous God. Then say with me. Say with Paul. Those works compared to Christ's righteousness are like stuff I get out of the toilet. And they would only condemn me before the tribunal of God. In Galatians 5, Paul is especially arguing, remember, against the Judaizers. The Judaizers did not explicitly deny Christ. Remember we said they used all the right language often. You are righteous by faith in Christ alone, they would say. But they would add, along with faith in Christ, circumcision before you members may be assured of your righteous standing before God. 
And Paul's argument, notice in verses 2 and 3, is that it's, it's either all Christ or no Christ. It's all or nothing. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Paul's inspired argument, simply put, is this. It's either that your righteous standing is all on the basis of Christ's finished work, or you're on your own. There's no such thing as including your good work as part of your righteousness before God. There's no such thing. It's either all Christ or you don't get Christ. Christ is everything or He is nothing to you. Either Christ has obeyed the whole law for your righteousness or you must obey the whole law perfectly for your righteousness. There's no other there's no other option. There is no hybrid plan. Therefore, beloved, I call you on the basis of God's word this morning, trust not in Christ and your PR membership. Trust not in Christ and your reform pedigree. Trust not in Christ and your devotional life. Trust not in Christ and your performance at school or as an office bearer. Trust not in Christ and anything. Trust in Christ alone. And here's an important point that I mentioned in the introduction. Remember that it's faith alone by which you receive any blessing of salvation, including this declaration of Christ's righteousness to you, is by faith alone. Faith alone is the means for receiving. So often, beloved, when we talk about this doctrine of justification, we focus on how Christ is the only basis. And that's true. And don't, don't include any works as the basis of my righteous standing before God. But we forget that it's also faith alone as the means for receiving this blessing of salvation. Throughout church history, the main way in which enemies of the gospel has attacked this doctrine is not only attacking the basis of our righteousness before God, but it's attacking the means by which we receive this blessing of salvation. Faith alone, without works, faith alone, without works. It has been argued, even in this place, that the basis for our righteous standing before God is Christ alone. 
But then when we come to receiving this declaration, hearing God declare us and assure us that we are righteous, now it's faith and works. I say with Paul, no. No. Then Christ is of no profit to you. The receiving, the experiencing of God declaring you righteous is by faith alone without works. And to put it concretely now, if you've come to church this morning, dear sinner, and you are troubled by your sin, and your conscience is testifying that you are a gross sinner, you've broken all the commandments of God, even willfully. You do not wait until after church or tomorrow, after you have improved your works, to hear and receive God declaring you righteous. No. But now, today, before you do any good work, let your heart rest in Jesus Christ and His finished righteousness alone. By faith alone. That's what it means. By faith alone, receive God's declaration of you. You are righteous in Christ alone. And works have no place along with your faith. Works are not to be mixed along with your faith to receive this Gospel and find comfort at this moment. There are two terrible results of the Gospel is corrupted by good works included as part of the basis of your righteousness before God or the means for receiving it. Very briefly, the first terrible result would be that it would be an assault of Christ and His finished work. That's very simple. It would be, a, it would be to attack Christ and what He has already done. Jeremiah 23, verse 6, describes Jesus this way, the Lord, our righteousness. It's a prophecy of Christ. He is our righteousness. And Christ said on the cross, it is finished, which means I'm done. I'm finished with the work necessary for their righteousness. And then God raised Jesus from the dead and said, I've proven by this resurrection He has finished that work. They are righteous. And then in His Word, again and again you hear preach, My people are righteous. They receive it by faith alone. Again and again you hear it. Christ's beautiful and perfect righteousness, freely imputed to our account, received by the very faith He works in us. Do you know what man is saying if he insists? I want to include one of my good works. I want to add to Christ's righteousness. What he is saying, what I would be saying, is that Christ has not done enough. That his work is insufficient. That he's not a complete Savior. That he needs me with my filthy works to contribute. To help him. And you hear the blasphemy of that. And you hear and you understand better now why Paul would be so zealous with his cutting words. 
This, to, this is to attack my Jesus. My Christ, my righteousness. He's furious. And we ought to be too with holy jealousy for Jesus. Don't you dare displace Christ with dung. Let him who insists and teaches that be cut off. And to add to our works as a whole or part of our righteousness before God would not only be an assault of Christ's finished work, but the second terrible result would be it would be for the destruction of the church's comfort. The very people who insist proudly on their good works, we would say today, shoot themselves in the foot. They remove comfort that we need. Listen to the Belgian Confession in this regard. Article 24. Thus then we would always be in doubt, tossed to and fro, without any certainty, and our poor consciences continually vexed if they should rely not on the merits of the suffering and death of our Savior. The Gospel's goal is the church's comfort for Christ's glory. The, the Gospel's goal is the church's comfort for Christ's glory. When works are included, Christ's glory is removed and the church's comfort as well. If I must add works to the basis or if I must do something along with faith to be sure of my righteous standing before God. Beloved, hear me speak personally and hear yourself. I will be continually vexed with doubts. Place yourself on your deathbed. On your dying day, beloved, and that's not far away for any of us. Put yourself there on your dying day, on that bed of suffering, when Satan will come to tell the holiest of men and women that they are too great of sinners to be declared righteous and be received by God in heaven. Do you want a pastor to come to you on your deathbed and say, Well, look at all your works. You must be. Or, yeah, you're, you're right. You're, you're not such a good, good, good saint. Get up and let's go and do something good. Because it's only in the way of 
even using that language, is only in the way of that you are righteous before God. On your deathbed, this is what you want to hear. I said it's not that far away. You must hear this for your comfort, for the church's comfort. Rest in Christ alone. You are righteous. You are justified because of Jesus Christ. And you may know this as your soul rests in Jesus alone. Without works, let God's people rest. And let all those who would take away this comfort be castrated who would trouble you otherwise. Are you offended by this? Perhaps offended by the sharp language of Paul. Or perhaps it's offensive that you heard me say that your good works are dung when included as a part of righteousness or along with faith to receive that righteousness. Man doesn't like these things. The human nature, especially that proud old man still inside of us, is offended by this. That's not the new man offended. It's the old man offended. You heard and were offended this morning. Because this gospel and the defense of it crushes pride. It humbles man to the dust. It exalts Christ and truly comforts us in Christ. Paul speaks of that offense in Galatians 4.11. Notice he speaks of the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross. It cuts. Question 63 of the Catechism sounds this offense. You hear the offended man who wants to include his work somewhere where it does not belong. What? That's the sound of the proud man, the old man offended when he hears this gospel in its defense. What about... My spirit wrought works then. Pastor, you're being unfair. You're not being balanced today. You're not telling the other side of the matter. Beloved, you know the other side of the matter. I'm on point. The catechism shows us the offense of this gospel. And there are two arguments that come forth from the offended old man. Two arguments that the catechism answers. We consider the second one first because it is the most common, contained in question 64. The offended old man, offended by the gospel, retorts in this way. Doth not this doctrine then make men careless and profane? It is framed in the question, but the question is meant to point an accusing finger to the gospel or at the gospel and to say with an accusation, this gospel of righteousness because of Christ alone, received by faith alone, without works, 
that this gospel makes man careless and profane. And the first response that we should have to that accusation as one who loves the gospel is this. That's blasphemy, more blasphemy. It is to accuse the doctrine of Christ of making men careless and profane. God forbid. That is to accuse God. It is to accuse Christ and His work of man's sin. By no means. Absolutely not. Now it is true that man himself with his old man, sometimes does take this gospel, not believing it, but twisting it to say, ah, let us sin that grace may abound. That does happen. It does happen even in the PRC. And perhaps too much in the PRC. I'm righteous, Christ alone, by faith alone, and so I may do whatever I want. That wicked response to the gospel does happen. But the point is, don't you dare blame it on the gospel. Do not make it the fault of God. And the doctrine of grace, true and pure grace. To charge the gospel with that is just as wicked as the antinomian twisting of the same scripture. In fact, the very opposite is true of the gospel. The gospel of Christ's righteousness freely imputed, received by faith alone without works, is the very power unto a holy life. Impossible, the catechism says, that the gospel will have this effect in believers. Impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. In all of His people, Christ works faith. Faith which is a bond. Faith which is a graft, first of all. That's what the catechism means by being implanted into Christ. We like branches are joined or implanted into the true vine. And when He does that and we receive this gospel through faith, there will, have, there will be one effect. There will be a power. Not into a profane and careless life, but into a life of holiness, of thanks, of love for this precious Savior. When the gospel penetrates the heart through faith, there will be a life of discipline, of earnestness to pursue all good works, not in order to contribute to Christ, but out of praise for so great a Savior. Galatians 5.16 describes the faith through which this takes place. 
Faith which worketh by love. And there Paul is not confusing faith and works. I make that point quickly because this is a verse that heretics will pull out of his context and use to confuse faith with works. And then deny the very gospel which Paul is defending here. What Paul is saying, faith though distinct from works, when it is worked in His people so that we're joined to Christ by that faith, will produce works of thanks. Faith will bring forth love. Thankful returns of ardent love unto so great a Savior. To blame the gospel for a careless and profane life is blasphemy, I say. Secondly, it's the very opposite that takes place when one receives the gospel. And more... It is really only it is really only the true gospel that will bring forth a life of godliness. Negatively, every other gospel, every other teaching that includes works in the wrong place, every other teaching in the entire world cannot make a man holy but will only make him profane and careless. It's so counterintuitive to the human fallen mind. But humans think, people think, and we sometimes along with them think that we need to manipulate the mind of the people of the church and scare them so that they perform good works. Make them fear so that they perform good works. Drive them unto it. But when every other false religion coaxes and manipulates the people to perform good works, which they say must be done for their righteous standing before God, none of those works are truly good. Because they're not done out of a true faith and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel brings forth truly good works for the glory of our Savior. In that connection, a warning, beloved. There is an overreaction. There is an overreaction that we as Protestant Reformed people are tempted to make in this day and age. We hear of real errors, real errors among those who have recently left us. Errors regarding repentance, faith, and works. And those are serious errors. 
Errors which deny an orderly manner in which God works. Errors which deny the necessity of repentance. Errors which deny a proper place of good works and obedience to the law. But beloved, let us be very careful of overreacting. Because in overreacting, we can easily go to the opposite extreme and fall into a ditch that we once came very close to falling into again. To so emphasize law and law and law and the demands and the warnings and threats so that Christ has a very small place is to begin to tread into the opposite ditch which is worse, beloved. It is. And making Christ very small to emphasize our law obedience. To so emphasize order that we must first repent and only then be forgiven so that forgiveness at the cross strangely becomes very little and hidden. It's to tread upon the other side of the ditch. We must be careful of that. Let us preach the whole counsel of God and believe the whole counsel of God and cling desperately to this gospel that we are righteous, we are forgiven because of Christ alone and His finished work. We receive it by faith alone without a single work. This is the very power by which we will, be, we will be able to live a holy and godly life unto all good works. Finally, we must answer the argument in question 63 very briefly, which uses the concept of reward in Scripture to attack the gospel, the offended, those offended by the gospel and the defense of the gospel say, do not our good works merit which yet God will reward in this and in a future life. And the opponents of justification by faith alone believe that the word reward in Scripture and the word merit not in Scripture are one and the same. That's their error. So that whenever Scripture speaks of reward, that means Scripture is teaching man earns or merits. That's false. The Scripture does teach reward many places. Revelation 22 is one place. Behold, Jesus says, I come quickly and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. God does graciously reward His people. But don't impose and put into the word reward some idea of merit. That's how 
enemies of the Gospel have always tried to use Scripture against the Gospel. To use Scripture against itself. The reward, the Catechism says, is not a merit. It's a grace. It's a grace alone. Now marvel with that to close. Marvel at how the rewards that God does give us as people is so gracious. A reward by definition is that which God gives to us after He works good works in us. These works, number one, He has ordained from all eternity. Not ours, they're His and His mind from eternity. That's Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. He has planned them all, each and every good work that we would do. And then in time, number two, Christ gave Himself up on the cross that He might earn all the blessings of salvation, righteousness, and also a holy life. Christ has earned the Holy Spirit by which we do good works. And then, and then in our lifetime, having justified us, He sends that Spirit into our hearts both to will and to do those good works. So He's planned it. Christ has earned Him. And He works both the will and the doing of those works. And then after we do those works, or when we do those works, we, we pollute all those works. We defile them all with, with our sins. We, we dirty what God works in us. And He sanctifies all those works. Cleans them all up because of Christ. Not for our justification, but He cleans them all up and accepts them as gifts of thanks. And then, having accepted them, they're not meritorious still. They're simply works of praise that He receives and delights in. We say, we've done that which was our duty, Luke 17, 10. They're not meritorious. Don't get anything. It's simply what we're obligated to do in thanks. And He still rewards us. In addition to receiving those works and delighting in them. In this life and in the future life. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That's what the word reward should make us think of. Therefore, you see how wicked it is to use such a beautiful concept of the reward of grace, turn it on its head and argue for a doctrine of ugly merit. Let those who do so be cut off, Paul says. Marvel at the love of God in Christ Jesus. Marvel at the true gospel. And do not be offended 
when your best works are described as defiled with sin, and which cannot in even a small way be your righteousness before God. Be not offended by the sharp words of God of Scripture here in this regard. Be not offended by the Gospel and its defense. Rather, beloved, be offended as Paul was in Christ's perfect work and God's pure grace is diminished in any manner so that if I or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, let him be accursed. Amen. Gracious God, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy, forgive us all our sins, Forgive us all our sins, which include not only the immoral behavior that taints all our best works, but also the sins of wrong thinking, of a doctrinal kind, which would with our pride attack the gospel of the righteousness of Christ as freely ours, imputed to our account, and received by faith alone. Let the cutting words of Scripture cut us to the heart Bring repentance where that is needed. Bring a revelation of the gospel in all its glory for the first time in those who do not, do not yet know it. And let that gospel be a power within us into a life of true holiness and thanksgiving to the glory of thy name, which is its ultimate goal. And give as well a courage within each of our hearts to speak what thy word doth speak, and preserve us as we defend the truth in love. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hope PR Ministry Podcast. We are a part of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, and we are located in West Michigan. Our goal is to spread our distinctive Reformed beliefs. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us at hoperwc at gmail.com and visit our website at hopeprchurch.org if you would like to learn more about our beliefs. You can also worship with us every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 5 p.m.